0: You wouldn't buy a car without a seatbelt, a laptop without Wi-Fi, or go a day without your cell phone. Could a business survive without the internet? Then why are many healthcare providers and provider organizations still not connected and enabled to share critical clinical information digitally in the care of your friends and family? Welcome to Notify, a podcast from Notu. Join host Dr. Peter Schock, Chief Health Officer and Teresa Bell, founder, president, and CTO, as they bring the profound impact of healthcare communication to life. Through frank conversation in understandable language and through real-world context, they'll demystify interoperability, helping you unlock the potential of healthcare communication at scale. You'll also learn the transformative impact of being no two connected. Connect, connect, connect. Listen, listen. Transform, transform.
1: Well, welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Notify. Uh, Dr. Peter Shuck here with my co-host Teresa Bell. Teresa, how are you doing? Hey, uh,
2: good morning. Um, I'm I'm doing okay considering I'm, a, I'm doing a reality check considering where most of the world sits right now. It's a, it's a tough time. So, uh, personally doing okay. It's been a rough couple of weeks, but, um, could be much worse given what we see going on.
1: Yeah. And, and, Teresa, I know that it's been a rough couple of weeks for you and I know, um, obviously the world is on fire now and putting a lot of different things in perspective. Um, it's hard to complain about much, but I do think some of the health uh, things that you have gone through with your family over the last couple of weeks, um, uh, are very pertinent to what we're trying to do in healthcare and why we're trying to do what we do. And I know you and I are pretty transparent about our lives in that regard, um, especially where it can be for the betterment, uh, the better understanding and the, the the motivation for what we do. So um, you and I had previously talked about it and I know you're willing to share some things. So I'd love to understand a little bit and maybe share with the audience, just for context. Um, your father had a slip and fall um and um, had an injury um that led him to be in the hospital and uh, obviously led you as the daughter and chief. Um, uh, what would I say? I, you've got sisters that are caretakers locally, but you have the power of attorney, the medical power of attorney and those kinds of things. And uh, just being a thoughtful daughter, um, you wanted to get back and, and be part of uh, what was going on there. So can you, do you mind sharing a little bit about uh, maybe your dad's history, because I know he's got some medical history to begin with, and then um, really what happened over the last couple of weeks, because I think it'll set the stage for a conversation around interoperability and some of healthcare's biggest problems and how it uh, is foundational in solving those.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my parents, and and like many, I'm um, getting to the age, and I don't like to admit it, but like I'm getting to the age where uh, you start to see your parents start to need help. Right, and and we've been fortunate. My sisters and I, and there's a lot of us. Um, uh, my we've we've been fortunate where our parents have been very healthy through our life, and we've never really had to deal with anything.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, and then just right before COVID, my dad was, uh, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's and hadn't experienced any symptoms up till then. He was in his mid 70s at the time, um, and so it was kind of a shock to the family because he had been so healthy, and and to see him, you know, quickly. Through COVID, uh, and then subsequently to COVID, see him digress very, very quickly. Uh,
1: with yeah, Teresa, with and just n- not just healthy, but but from the stories I've heard you tell of your dad, who has, you know, uh, was one of the fathers of fiber optics, um, uh, yeah. a very sharp, intelligent guy, mentally with it. And for those that don't understand Parkinson's, Parkinson's is a progressive neurodegenerative disease that impacts body's movement but also can begin to impact thought processes um and create some uh some dementia-like symptoms and cognitive impairment which is really really difficult for anybody um but somebody who kind of made their living with their mind um also very very difficult uh, in that regard.
2: Yeah. yeah, um very you're absolutely right. My well, one my parents are very different from each other so um for good or for bad I think I got an equal split of their genes but uh, my dad is a uh, computer engineer, uh, electrical engineer by by background and schooling. Um, through much of his career, he spent time. Uh, he has a number of patents on the uh, on the the end of fiber optics and spent a lot of time in that. So obviously built a lot of success around that. Um, and then was responsible for a number of the chips that went into Sun Microsystems and and Apple. Uh, so he had designed a number of of chips. He spent a lot of, most of his time in hardware. Um, and hardware design so I guess that's where some of the natural curiosity has come from for me although I (laughs) didn't go on the hardware path Um, and then my mom is a uh, she stayed home with us girls uh, and had the opportunity to that but by trade she's a she's a fine artist and was for most of our life so I've got two very different parents um, but very healthy and my dad was extremely up until his early seventies, he was very, very active in as an electrical engineer and providing consulting services, even though he had retired officially. Um, he was providing consulting services to organizations and and doing that. So uh, through that process, again when he was diagnosed with Parkinson's, you know, he was and I understand this mindset. I can I can catch myself in it. He thought he probably could just overcome it. It would be maybe something that would be a slow progressive disease, especially considering his age, that he wouldn't necessarily experience the full system symptoms of it. And unfortunately, that's not the case. So he he digressed very quickly. He also um, didn't know it at the time, he ended up having osteoporosis. And that's his mother had that. Um, and obviously, very keen eye to making sure the rest of us are are doing what we can to prevent that. But he had osteoporosis. And, uh, and during COVID, he broke his back, uh, lifting where he shouldn't have been lifting, but he lifted and he, he broke one of his uh, vertebrae in his back. Then he had you probably know the name of it. I can't actually recall the name of it right now. But he had a, a, a procedure done where they put cement actually in in the back. Yeah, it,
1: yeah. And I did just just because we're using some terms, I want to make sure that we're uh, keeping it real. So the osteoporosis is really thinning of the bones, and it makes the bones more brittle and more likely to fracture or break. And the spinal fractures that your dad had are common to so many people that have uh, osteoporosis. They're compression fractures, which means that the vertebra kind of. That hold our uh, backbone up, they compress on one another, and they can be very painful and lead to deformity um, and loss of function over time if you have a lot of them. And the procedure he had is what they call a kyphoplasty, and all it is is they put um, uh, a substance into uh, the collapsed vertebra to raise it up again to prevent that deformity, and it actually can help resolve pain without the need for a lot of um, heavy pain medications, which in that age group can be very difficult um, uh, when they're on pain medication. So, just uh, sorry, the medical aside, I couldn't let that part. Uh, I couldn't let that part go. But uh, I think you described it well. But 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 those things now: Parkinson's progressive neuromotor dysfunction that impacts his walking, his balance, um, his cognitive function, thinning bones that make him more likely to have fractures, and some symptoms of that by having the compression fracture already. And then flash forward to a couple of weeks ago when you got a call, um, as as we all fear we do with our aging parents.
2: Yeah. Um, so a little bit, of, I'll fill in a little bit more before I flash uh, flash forward. He had, he had this procedure done and it ended up, unfortunately for him, that it created enough pressure in the rest of his vertebrae that he cracked three more. Oh, wow. Um, so he's been very actively engaged with the medical community, as you can imagine, just trying to relieve the pain. Um, also yeah. experienced significant digestive issues uh as a result of everything that he's experienced and of course cognitively um we watched him decline my i have a number of sisters i have two that live close and and they live in the minneapolis area uh that take care of him one in particular that's there frequently and and she is a real uh kind and warm-hearted person I, we all owe her a lot as a family um and, for, and forgive me if i get a little bit uh, emotional during it but um yeah, I mean, it's, it's been difficult to watch him, you know, big digress like
0: that. Yeah.
1: And I, I think the emotion is well warranted <laughs> and I'm glad I always used to tell folks that my perspective on that emotion during these times is that's emotion. It demonstrates the love, concern and care that you have for someone and the impact that they have in your life. Um, and that's a really tender thing. Um, uh, sometimes it can make it hard to talk, but it's a really tender thing. Don't be embarrassed by it or um, uh, feel free to show it in that regard. So I know that uh, I know that you also live in Boise, so you're away. Um, yep. And I know as a son who lives far away from his aging father, there's a um, disconnect sometimes that can occur there. And there's a, and I also have brothers that are closer and visit him. And I'm very thankful for their diligence in doing that boys and girls are a little bit different, um, uh, in, in, in how we check in on our parents. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's probably not as, it's probably not as tender and thorough, uh, for us checking in as it may be for you guys. But, um, uh, anyway, so I do understand that piece. And then we all hate to get that call that says, yeah. um, I remember it with my mother, um, uh, when she passed and, and, um, your dad hasn't passed, but, but I remember you talking through getting that call with your dad and what that meant.
2: Yeah. A couple, that was a couple weekends ago now. Um, sisters called me and, and, uh, mom and dad have really worked hard to maintain their autonomy as much as they can. Um, and so they were traveling to Southern Minnesota to see my oldest sister's girls. And unfortunately when they got down there, my dad literally was just a few steps out of the car, walking up a, a couple cement steps and didn't use in this case, some mm-hmm. of his, uh, walking devices and fell um fell backwards ended up falling on both his hips and broke uh, broke his hip uh in multiple places and of course that's never a good uh a good thing to happen when you have what he has and also being elderly so um, that whole circumstance in rural minnesota finding a place that they could take care of him um and they were going to, they looked at, they called many, many different facilities to try to get them in for surgery, ended up actually transporting them three and a half hours north back up to where, back up to the uh, cities, Minneapolis. Um, and that one in itself was kind of a disaster. Uh, and the transport and, and sharing the clinical information, them getting access to the clinical information as they were seeking to at least stabilize them. Uh, again, really difficult and, and walking through that remotely was even harder. Uh, he went through surgery. That, that night and ended up doing, um, the surgeon was fantastic, uh, in terms of just outlining what, you know, expectations should be. Dad did very well through the surgery. So that was fortunate. Um, they did it partial hip replacement and then, you know, the rest, whatever it takes to, to manage his hip fracture. Um, so he came through that well, but of course with, and as you had, you know, warned me, uh, he came through it with significant, he had to go under general anesthesia, which they don't, I guess, typically do, but because a good condition. Uh, that made it worse. And that in combination with, he takes five medications for his Parkinson's and different, you know, different issues uh, made it just difficult for him to come out. So delirium and everything else and, and him being transferred up to that facility, of course, they couldn't get access to any of the records and the x-rays that had been done uh, down in the rural facility. And so they, they did all of that again. Uh, And then as he went into surgery uh, my sister worked with, with the nursing staff there to see if they had access to the medications that he was actively mm. on. Um, and he, they, they had access to two of the five, uh, and didn't wow. see the rest of the, to the rec- rest of the record, which is really unfortunate because it's actually all part of the same health system there, uh, which made it even more interesting to me, which I absolutely will get to the bottom of that when when things kind of lighten up here. <laughs> um, so watching him in the next few days, he was, you know, significantly impaired. And then of course, um. As anticipated and, and told us by his, his uh, hospitalist that he would be transferred to an inpatient rehab facility, which happened. Uh, and that transfer, although without incident in the transfer, when he got to the facility, they had access to none of his records and um, didn't have his medications, had to make active phone calls while he was there. Thank goodness again for my sister, because she has she keeps a very specific log on everything that he does when he takes the dosage and everything else um, compared it to what they have and they didn't have any of it, which is, you know, just insane. It was 10 miles from the hospital and, and where he was transferred. So didn't have any it, made sure they had access to it. it took him about two days to get the medications, uh, filled for him, uh, which created some additional issues for him. And, you know, just, it was just a series of things, but it, during that whole thing, all that sounds very negative, but I also watched the other side of it and watched some of the most wonderful people, uh, that I, as I started the company, I've said this many, many times, I started this company for the providers, our healthcare providers, yeah. to make their life easier. And as as emotional as it was, and as frustrated as I was with our health system, watching these providers care for my father, uh, and in many situations where it wasn't so great, um, and he was having issues with bowels and everything else, are amazing people. And you, we've got to make their lives easier. We have a shortage. They had an overnight. They had one one nurse, for instance, in the inpatient rehab facility that was covering everybody because wow. they were they were so short on staff. It's just watching it firsthand, experiencing everything that we talk about healthcare's biggest problems. To use your words, um, these are real-time issues that we have to get in front of our our healthcare system.
1: Yeah. Number one, thank you so much for sharing that as a foundation for this conversation today and some future conversations that we're going to have. I know it's fresh on your mind, a fresh emotional experience for you, but I know our audience can identify with it because every one of us at one point or another is going to be a patient ourselves or the loved one of somebody who is in need of healthcare services and receiving healthcare services in some way or another. And I imagine everybody out there can identify with what you just talked about. And what I loved about what you just said is you see the the best and worst of healthcare at the same time. You see these unbelievably dedicated people doing acts of service that quite frankly, not everybody can bring themselves to do. Um, Cleaning up somebody who's messed themselves um, uh, in those circumstances, and the loss of personal dignity and privacy in that moment, and how people deal with that—that's the beauty of healthcare, uh, right? And, and and one of the greatest things about healthcare is that there are those individuals among us who are willing to do that um, and be those people to serve. And now I'm getting emotional about it because <laughs> it, it it really rings true. It really rings rings true to me. Um, from all, all the way from nurse aides and, and hucks in the hospital um, and, and skilled nursing facilities to the doctors and surgeons and everything else. It encompasses everybody that's providing some frontline service in healthcare in that regard. Even the smile of somebody who checks you in, you know, the warm voice of somebody um, when you call to ask a question or check up on them in the hospital is incredibly important. And then you see the struggles in healthcare <laughs> about how you know, and, and what was funny is when, when you were Trace is lucky, she has multiple friends in healthcare. I don't know how people survive without having a friend in healthcare. I've said this about my own parents. I don't know how they understand what they're supposed to do, how they interpret what's told them, even with the best of intention without having a son, they can call and say, Hey, Peter, um, what does this mean? What do I need to do? Et cetera. And, uh, so you and I talked a number of times this weekend is, Hey, this is what happened to my dad. I think they're going to transfer him here. Does that sound right? Does this sound right? And everything in that process about being at a you know a rural hospital that probably didn't have all the equipment they needed for an injury of that magnitude um, and what was going to be necessary to care for the complexity of his condition to transfer them to a bigger facility and do that. The idea that they had to repeat tests because either the test couldn't be done uh, or couldn't be located from the other one or weren't done with equipment that might be as sophisticated as it needs to be, et cetera, many different reasons, but the, the, the duplication of that work, the fact that information critical to your dad's care wasn't necessarily available um, at the point of care for the providers in those circumstances. Um, and then again, on transition to the, so much to talk about in that regard. But as we talk through that, it was, it, it is, it is amazing to me that for all the wonderful people that work in healthcare, How do we not yet provide them the tools and the information they need to maximize their compassion, their commitment, their expertise to the benefit of the people they serve, um, whether it be for outcomes, experience, coordination of care, et cetera? Um, And how do we not enable healthcare businesses to operate with a greater level of efficiency and safety by making clinical information available at the point of care. So um, I want to, I want to really go ahead. You're going to say something. I can, I can, I I can tell, Uh, I I want you to say it before we go to break. And then when we come back, we'll talk a little bit. Um, We won't get through everything here in this episode and we'll carry it over to the next one. But I want to talk a little bit about some of these problems that we're seeing and how interoperability begins to foundationally serve as a key part of the solution uh, to healthcare's biggest problems
2: yeah I mean, a couple of the things that I had a lot of time spent next to my dad bedside uh, a lot of time to think and in his lucid moments he would ask me isn't he's like isn't this your job to fix it or isn't this what you're supposed to be doing
1: so <laughs> Was that in his lucid state, you said? He knew exactly where to go.
2: <laughs> the couple of things that I thought about is the, although I was frustrated with what I call food, shelter, water of health information exchange. So getting his problem lists, his allergies, medications, you know, all the stuff that we talk about, those are food, shelter, water. But even the person of my dad, who my dad is, oh, and
1: geez.
2: and sharing it between of of course, the initial facility would never have known that. But once he got to the facility that was five miles from his home, that he goes and sees all the physicians in that area and all the care providers in that area. And then when he was transferred, the person of who my dad was and the importance of that to the staff as they're drafting up care plans and personalized care plans, I know that that certainly didn't make it over, right? It's like he was learning he was meeting new people every he Was going and yeah, so we're all different. the
1: non-clinical stuff that makes him who he is. Because I've always said this: a patient is not uh, the disease they bring to the office. Right? Um, they're so much more, and they happen right. to have that disease. And if all we know of them is that disease, we don't know them.
2: Yeah, and then there's just so much, and that's you know that's the long haul to what we're trying to get done here. First, it's food, shelter, water, and then the long haul for that. But the, the second piece I thought about was the advocacy that for especially elderly patients or those that haven't, don't have any familiarity with the healthcare system, having advocates, but that is an unsustainable method. We don't have, we don't have provider staffing today. We have shortages of that. Now we go to talk about advocacy and the need for it. I totally believe it. How are you going to fill those spots? Yeah. The
1: challenge with advocacy and I've always had this challenge because I've been at health systems where we've created programs around advocacy, where we created care coordination programs, care management programs, uh, patient advocates um, uh, for patients. The challenge is we're, we're we're using human resources to fill to f- to fill gaps. And I'm looking okay. at the brick wall behind okay. your 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 uh, uh, head there. And and we're just filling gaps in the mortar um, with people, as opposed to really examining what makes the most sense and what could be done. Imagine. Yep. If everywhere I went, everybody had what they needed to know about me as a person, as a patient to deliver the best clinical care in the most timely fashion, man, imagine that world and what we could do in that world, right? That's Rather right. than just patching things and, and, and all the things that we're spending money on now to help fill those gaps and patch on to broken processes because we're not really fixing or addressing the big issues. What could we do with that? <laughs> yes. In healthcare, what what kind of care models or service models could we deliver and build with those resources that we don't have now? Um, because we're we're spending them filling these gaps. Um, again, keep going because I, I I need to take a break. I know we're coming up on a break, but but please finish because I I, I know you've got this. Pregnant pause that just says, Hey, I've got something I gotta say.
2: and <laughs> yeah, I have a hard time talking over people. So it's I wanted to hear have you I, How
1: long have we known each other? And you've gotta know you can just talk over me.
2: I can't. I can't you know, I guess it's
1: I guess it's my dad again, but if you're
2: my dad, but the the thing that as I was able to separate myself emotionally from the circumstance after three or four days of being home, um, reflecting on it, it was while I was there, I'll, I'll be honest in my emotions that it was like I I can't fix this. It's too broken, right? I've I've dedicated twenty five years of my life to this, and I, I can't I can't fix this. And I, I left feeling that way on the plane ride home, absolutely feeling that way. And then I'm like, no, this is why I'm doing it. Stick to it. This is why the company's doing it. Why you joined our team, and it is absolutely fixable. And we've done a lot of progress. I had to remind myself on that in the emotional moments is that nope, you got to just. Keep looking forward and look back for a minute and see what has been done. And it's huge. And it now needs additional push, especially on on behalf of what we you know call post-acute um, or whatever you want to call it. But it absolutely is feasible to get to some of these tangible milestones that make a real impact to the outcome. So I love feeling yeah. it. It just took me over 72 hours to get there. <laughs>
1: Well, no, but I, I think everybody needs time to process those things. And and I'll be honest, Teresa, I, I think that's really transparent, what you just said, because I know you've given your life to it. You've been an incredible advocate for it. You're an eternal optimist around what can get done. You're a problem solver. Your company, no two, our company is a problem solver, right? Um, uh, we sit around and talk about how do we contribute to solving these problems through the democratization of Healthcare Information Exchange. and and it, it it's to me a really transparent to share that thought right i mean we all have those times when the darkness creeps in right when the doubt creeps in um and 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 i think that's i think that's true for anybody who's mission driven um and um uh, that, that they're going to have those times um i certainly had them i've talked to you about them when i was considering joining o2 about just 16 years as a health system executive, trying to drive the principles of population health forward in those organizations and drive change. It's swimming upstream. I know what a salmon feels like uh, during spawning season and how exhausted they must be when they get there. It's no wonder the bears are sitting there um, and 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 ready to capture them because they have no more energy left to fight. Um, and, and so you have those dark moments. But I, I also think you're atypical as a founder in those circumstances. Because not only do you have a, a, a very healthy optimism around the vision you've created, but you have tackled very difficult tactical challenges to bring that vision to reality and are not un, um, unaccustomed to making pivots in how you bring that vision to reality as the business realities demand you to do so, which I think is an incredibly Positive thing in all of that. Um, so um, I really appreciate the transparency of the, the 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 darked out moments, and I know I've seen you go through that over a couple of weeks here, um, and I know you're back on top. And, and some of that too is is I think making some business reality decisions around. Here are the tangible things I know we can tackle next week. I, I've got a billion things to tackle. Here are the ones that I need to tackle next week that are going to make it uh, uh, make a difference and uh, move the needle forward. So. Thank you very much Uh, as a friend, thank you very much as a colleague for sharing uh, that personal story uh, and letting us use it to discuss the importance of interoperability in this process or as a launching pad to discuss that. I never want to remove the personal connection between the technology and its impact and the people the technology is meant to serve and the problems that it's meant to solve. Because that to me is where adoption occurs. That to me is where change, innovation, transformation actually occurs. When I have a personal connection to my, 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 my dog just jumped off the back of my couch. Um, it's what, it's what Trace is laughing at. Uh, I have two uh, dogs there. They serve me as uh, uh, office pets. Um, but that personal connection is where the magic happens in terms of adoption in my mind. And I want everybody to get that. If I could have my way, everybody within the sound of my voice, anybody who could listen to this podcast, anybody who could see our posts on um, social media, uh, see us at an event would hear the passion around the pragmatic connection between the technology that we're providing and uh, the work that needs to get done in healthcare. Because to me, that's where, um, that, that's the beauty of it. That's the, that's the mission of it. So let's take a quick break and we'll come back and we'll talk about a couple specific uh, 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 areas where interoperability really is the foundation of solving some of the problems that uh, uh, we talked about. We'll be right back. Hey everyone, my name is Matt Becker, VP of Interoperability at No2. I wanted to take a moment to introduce our connectivity report. Did you ever wonder who in your area you could connect with digitally and reduce the manual activities associated with clinical information exchange? Well, simply visit no2.com, click the link for connectivity report, then enter your name, email, and zip code, and we'll send you a report to show those providers and provider organizations already connected and waiting for you to join them. Take the first step to getting No2 connected. It's free, takes less than 30 seconds, and will spark digital transformation that could revolutionize your business. There's even a how-to video to make sure you get the most from the report.
0: Connect, listen, transform. This is Notify with your host, Dr. Peter Shuck and Teresa Bell.
1: Welcome back, everybody. Uh, For break, uh, we are talking about, uh, before the break, we had uh, uh, kind of Tracy had shared a personal uh, story around her father's recent illness um, and his uh, chronic conditions and the, the, the kind of journey uh, from his fall um, through a community hospital to a tertiary care center and then uh, to a rehab facility close to home and some of the challenges that, that we were dealing with there. And one of the things we mentioned in our previous podcast is really around interoperability serving as a foundational element for the solutioning to healthcare's biggest problems. And one of the things that we talk about internally all the time is the free flow of clinical data at the point of care really is foundational to solving some of those problems. And so we're gonna use kind of, uh, Teresa, your story and your story about your father that I think resonates with so many of us uh, to talk a little bit about some of those areas where interoperability um, can have significant impact that begins to solve for some of the biggest problems in healthcare. So, uh, it, and uh, you ready to get started? I, I am. Absolutely. So I, I put a, oh, I put well, a note out on, 90%. I put a post out on LinkedIn uh, uh, last week uh, for No. two, asking people what they thought their healthcare's biggest problems were. Um, and I listed a few, it wasn't an exhaustive list. And and the order of the list wasn't as important as just kind of getting down uh, people's thoughts, but but generally speaking, when you get responses to that question, people talk about the cost of care, uh, depending upon the perspective, right? Health system sure. executives, healthcare thought leaders, academics talk about things like the cost of care, um, uh, poorer clinical outcomes than we would expect for how much we pay for healthcare. We talk about the fragmentation of care, um, the waste in healthcare, et cetera. For providers, we talk about how crappy my experience is in providing care for folks, right? Because I've got systems of record that weren't designed around the workflows a doctor naturally uses to take care of a patient uh, historically. Um, And they're not connected to one another. So it's hard to talk. And we've talked about that. Um, As a patient, I worry, am I as safe as I need to be when I go into a doctor's office, especially if I'm seeing more than one, do they have all the information they need about me? As a patient, I'm thinking, couldn't it be easier um, to navigate the healthcare system? Couldn't people know me because I've been there a number of times? Why do I have to keep telling them the same information, um, like my name and my address (laughs) and all that stuff every time I go? Uh, So I want to talk a little bit about how the movement of, and I'm going to say clinical data here, but understand to me, that means things like demographics, social determinants of health, and so forth. It's bigger than just you have this diagnosis and this medication your But the movement of a patient's record from one location to another at the point of care, so all the information about that individual is available, um, is foundational to solving some of healthcare's biggest problems. And we'll use this as an illustration. The one that stuck out to me um, is transitions of care. So your, your dad went through two distinct transitions of care in the week that he had uh, his injury to the community hospital. He was transported by EMS to the community hospital, likely. He probably went through three. Yeah. 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 Walk walk through that. Yeah. Yeah. Walk through that.
2: It it depends on, because there's that word, both transitions of care one and referrals are often interchangeable and they really shouldn't be. Um, So transitions of care, literally when you hand the patient off, you transition them from one care setting to another. And he went from a, you know, a critical access hospital to uh, transport for three and a half hours, which transported him took care of him right so that's one transition to care and
1: well, then you so the how, crit- how did you how did you get to the critical access hospital uh,
2: my mother so she oh, well, okay. no, you're right that's uh, you're right it was yep. not my mom they ended up calling the uh, paramedic because she couldn't pick him up um so you had the EMS agency that local agency a role at it was actually a fire agency that brought him to the critical access hospital so first transition to care right Yep. Second transition of care. So after he was stayed there was the transport, which a medical transport. It wasn't a full-fledged EMS that took him once he was stabilized, took him three and a half hours north to the, you know, mid-sized hospital, health system, uh, near my parents' house. And you know, obviously trained there's another transition of care that include that occurred. Uh, and then there was that kind of sideline transition from the critical access hospital where they did some of the imagery and some of the notes that were taken to this. Uh, New facility that my dad was at, um, that he stayed there for a few days. And then the transition of care from there to the inpatient rehab facility. But there was a transport in between that, too, is all the albeit short, there was really nothing provided outside of just literally transport. Um, But between there, there was data loss. There was absolutely, you know, loss of who this person is, especially in the kind of the last one of, of who this person is and what needed to happen. Uh, but every one of those represented a data integrity problem. Every every one of them represented just this human being transported throughout the ecosystem of healthcare problem. Yeah. Uh, the The
1: yeah. thing that stands out to me about that is when I think about it is we call them transitions of care, but really, on the ones on both sides of that transaction, if you will, are healthcare providers. Seeking to provide the best possible care for the individual, the person in front of them, right, uh, and have the most complete, right? yeah, and have the do. most complete set yep. of data, um, so that they can provide the best care while that individual is in their stead. And so, from the EMS people that responded to the call uh, to get them to critical access hospital, to the people in critical access hospital, to the transport team, to the receiving hospital, uh, to the transport yep. team, and to the uh, to the LTAC. One of the things that stood out to me was you mentioned that your your dad has some chronic illness. He has Parkinson's mm-hmm. disease and is on five medications for that Parkinson's disease and the subsequent Parkinson's. side effects of the medications, yep. um, as people often are. Uh, tertiary care center, I'll call that. That just means a bigger hospital in the town where he lives, basically, that can handle more complex things. They didn't have all his medication information handy.
2: At either location. And I don't think it would have been reasonable to expect that the the critical access hospital would have handed that. But where he landed at this tertiary center was in the heart of where he seeks care every day. And and part of many of the physicians that he sees and the care providers that he sees are part of that health system. And they didn't have access to the clinical information, even though they had providers that are part of the health system. They didn't see his complete patient record uh, for things like medications and some of the other, you know, daily stuff. Cause he was, he's in physician offices at least seven or eight times a month, right. To see. So you're
1: saying that the data loss from the, uh, uh, respond, initial responders and the critical access hospital was more a relationship. They, he, your dad That's was the, completely was new to them, them and he yeah. wasn't able to tell them that information. Family wasn't able to tell them information. Right. They wouldn't have had any way to get that information de novo at that time.
2: Yeah, so why couldn't why couldn't, why couldn't well, they the, be
1: connected? Why couldn't they be connected? Critical
2: access hospital was on a small. Um, I won't name the EHRs for you know protecting the innocent here. Well, maybe
1: they're not. <laughs> um, well, it's they're not about a- yeah, I agree. It's not about demonizing EHRs, right. but It it does it does bring up a good point, right? Because in my mind, Trace, I'm thinking that hey, if EMS was connected, they could query somewhere on the ride, right? Um, if yep. the hospital was connected they could query on arrival, right, right. to get information uh, from your dad, right, um, yep. within a geographic area. So there is a potential that if we were connected, we could have gotten that information at the at one of those earlier points.
2: Well, absolutely. I mean, you start with the ambulance, the EMS, the county fire EMS that picked him up. I, I'm sure, and you would know better than I do, I'm, I'm sure if they had the ability to look out, hey, what kind of medications is he on? You know, is this guy going to bleed out or do we have any other issues that could happen? Does he have, you know, as they deliver care? Cause he obviously was an extraordinary pain, um, to the point where my sister said he was almost passing out. He was in so much pain and all this you know, stuff. Yeah, I
1: can imagine.
2: So the delivery of care just in that moment, knowing, does he have any allergies? You know, is there anything? I'd, and again, I don't, I don't have that side of the equation, but I'm sure that data is important to when they dropped him off at this critical access hospital, again, stabilizing him getting first of all taking care of the pain that he was in making sure that there was no other issues that they didn't see they immediately put him into imaging and he had work done there and the and he had reports but they weren't able to get access to them once he was transported up to the tertiary hospital so they did reran everything up there and maybe they needed to to your point uh, but even this tertiary hospital couldn't see. And unfortunately my sister that takes care of him every day, that keeps all this was out of pocket. And you know, my elder, parents are elderly, so they don't carry a lot of that information with them. They certainly can't list off all the medications. Well, And it's a, it's
1: an enormous burden to keep all that information no. when you're not in healthcare to keep all that information straight, know what's important, what's not important and have it readily available to folks. Um, and, and, and I would tell you, I don't know as providers, um, I think it's probably fifty-fifty in terms of providers' belief that the source of truth is the patient's information, right, or a patient's family information, sure. right? Understandably um, so. Yeah. yeah. I want to go back to the idea, just again, about the, the EMS piece about this because I think it, it's an interesting thing. Uh, and again, this is not demonizing. This is just talking about a real problem in healthcare, right? That 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 we're not giving the people who care for us the optimal tools to care for us in the best way, right? Um, to minimize risk, um, to minimize risk to them, to minimize risk to us, and to provide the best outcomes. When I think about it, I was just thinking about this I- idea of the tools. We always use this term, knowledge is power, right? Uh, I've heard that all my life, right? And I think it had, people use it for different reasons, but the reality of it is we've got all these fancy tools that we give people to save lives. And sometimes it's just information Yep. that can be the most critical thing, right? Just information in a timely fashion. So when I think about the the EMS folks, and I think about that, that particular moment there, certainly, you know, you go to, you get called out of the EMS and there are mild things. There are minor things that you know pretty right away uh, are pretty minor. And a full medical history is probably not as important uh, right. in something like that or critical in something like that. I think it'd be useful, but not as critical. And then you get called out on major traumas, right? Um, uh, violent traumas, auto accidents, those kinds of things, heart attacks where the person's already dead. And I'm not too concerned about their asthma or things of that nature. I'm just trying to restart the heart, stop the bleeding, those kinds of things, right? There's a time where I can get that information. That information is more critical to have a broader picture. But then there are these tweeners, right? Where somebody falls and breaks a hip, yeah. Right and they're not dying in the moment, right? And they're not bleeding uh, ostensibly anywhere. Uh, it would be really good to know in that moment, a lot of that um, uh, additional medical history, medications, allergies, those kind of things, because in those cases, you potentially can do harm by not knowing enough, right? Now, when somebody's dead and dying and you need to staunch some bleeding, probably not knowing about the aspirin they took the, that morning is not a big deal, you know, those kind of things. That's exaggeration, but So, so I I think there's a a, a use case for it, even in that circumstance. Um, And and ostensibly, if they had been connect, if they had the ability to query, there could have been a moment where they could have queried in that semi-emergent kind of situation, right? Emergent from my perspective as a patient, not emergent in comparison to a heart attack, you know, those kind of things. Um, Yeah. And then I think the critical access hospital as well um, uh, in the, in that, in that same vein again, but,
2: there, you know, really about getting rid of the pain, right. Making sure yep. that he's stabilized, getting rid of the pain. I assess the situation and knowing does he, as I'm assessing, giving him pain medication, is he allergic to it? You know, like, is, Does he have, you know, what kind of heart conditions does he have that this could be, those are the types of things that like you're saying, the care settings, Knowing what data, if the data is available, what data to deliver in a timely fashion that impacts their decisions in the moment is,
1: yeah. Yeah. And and as a provider, putting a provider mindset on that, it's a risk reward scenario, right? It's it's Mm -hmm. when I'm electing to do something that isn't a clearly life-saving intervention that I take on the most risk when I don't know, Uh, because- I'm doing something that I could have potentially chosen an alternative for, if there was a contraindication or a reason not to do what I was deciding yeah. to do. Right? Um, it, it, it's hard to say I shouldn't give somebody who's lying dead, you know, a dose of atropine, a dose of epinephrine to try and start their heart, yeah. um, regardless of whatever their uh, uh, other medical history is, because the the situation's dire. Those silly examples, but I think it's very true. Um, and and I, I outline those again, not to draw fault of EMS or critical care access hospital and specifically not these areas, but just to say this is the opportunity. Yeah, I mean, this is an enormous opportunity. Um, and then it boggled my mind, too, around. So so, so patient safety um, is what we've kind of talked about in the transition to care pieces there. Patient experience is also a, a critical Hugely component. Impacted.
2: Hugely. I saw it firsthand. Patient and family experience hugely impacted because yeah, you the family talk to... up spending most of the time advocating, like I, my sister and I were going around the hospital saying, Hey, do you have this? Do you have that? And the inpatient rehab, making sure that, you know, they understood who, what my dad needed and yeah, it's absolutely. So patient experiences, patient and family experience is huge.
1: Yeah. And I think about, yeah. And, and some of the information that's necessary to improve patient and family experience isn't necessarily a diagnosis or a medication or an allergy. It may be what are their social religious preferences, what are their dietary preferences, or uh, those types of things that make a significant difference um, in terms of their overall recovery, mentality, attitude, um, etc. And I'll tell you, as somebody who's taking care of family, and I, I think you just resonated with this. It is a, you know it when you see it. We've almost expected never to see it, but you know it when you see it. When somebody is taking care of the whole person. Oh, for sure. A, as a patient. And they're sensitive to those types of things that we take for granted every day, um, but are incredibly important to us when they're taken away. Important for dignity and and, and understanding and being seen and so forth. Um, you really appreciate it when you see it. And some of that, quite frankly, we can help by moving the right information uh, from point to point um, uh, effectively.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's just, it, there's a few examples that I'm like if they had that understanding of who the whole person was creating as they do, you know, the transfer of care into like the inpatient rehab facility. Cause now I'm here could be for a while. Right. And I'm, I'm kind of coming to live with you. I'd love if you understand. So you know, I'd love to understand if if they knew about me and maybe I'm hard of hearing, or I, I English is my second language, or you know I have certain religious preferences and I you know do follow certain rituals at, at night. Those types of things and the accommodation to that, what a difference in experience, and it the impact to the patient maybe calming themselves or feeling. Like, this isn't going to be a terrible experience because right away, moving into the inpatient rehab facility, again, the, the care staff were doing the best they could. Short staffed, everything else. So I have no issues. It's, yeah, we
1: got to help them know these people. I mean, we can't expect them to <laughs> do all that we're asking them to do and just yeah have that information.
2: It's like the care experience could just be enhanced and it's i i keep saying am i getting ahead of myself because right now we're we're dealing with literally food shelter water getting our staffing shortages taken care of so it's putting some of the basics in place but the opportunity to have a yeah. tremendous care experience is 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 really there so
1: and and i agree with you i do think we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit because we want to f- flash forward to the end and right now it's about yeah. getting con- people connected but I, I want people to draw a clear line though connecting what we're talking about with simple connectivity, right, and the movement of clinical information. Yes, there's a ton of things that we need to get better about doing with I, the I information would say the on a
2: technical. Because this is all it captured: the clinical, social and demographic information that's available today. It may not be all the social
1: information, yep. but some yep. no.
2: of that is captured today.
1: Agree. And maybe I got to get better about saying just clinical information. It's not just about diagnoses. It's, and I've said that a couple of times and I need to come up, I need to think about that phraseology because I am talking about what you're talking about there. Um, and, and the reality of it is let's start there. Uh, yep. Many, many things we can let's iterate to... on, need to iterate on and everything else. But man, if everybody's not connected there, we're not doing the least that we could do. I remember a a show, MASH, uh, this really dates me, um, and Radar O'Reilly was driving Hawkeye Pierce around in the back of a Jeep, and the Jeep had a flat tire, and Radar was the corporal, and Hawkeye was the captain and the surgeon, and Radar got out of the Jeep to change the tire, and Hawkeye kept sitting in the back of the Jeep, so Radar was getting ready to jack up the Jeep with Hawkeye in it, and Radar got frustrated and said, can you at least get out? It's the least you can do. <laughs> and, and Hawkeye's response in his smart aleck way was well, never let it be said I didn't do the least I could do, right? N- never yeah. let healthcare say that it didn't do the least it could do That's by really getting good. connected first, right? I mean, get connected first. It's the least we can do and it's available now today, right? Yeah. Let's worry about all the iterations, but get the heck connected. Yeah. I'd almost rather people get connected, not worry about the other things first. Oh, for and then sure. start going. What am I going to do with this information? Yeah. yeah. So, the other the other piece that I the, the other thing that interested me that stuck out to me, and then we'll take a quick break and and come back and wrap up because I know that um, uh, there's a lot more we want to talk about, and we'll run this through a couple of episodes here because I think it's really impactful. But the other thing that stood out to me was when he got to the tertiary care center, there were. They didn't have all this information, and it was from doctors in the same market connected to the same yep. health system. In some cases, yep. Um, and and we'll we'll leave it there. We need to dig into that a little bit, but that's a shocking thing to me when you think about it. Coming from, I,
2: wish I, I, wish I coming I, from
1: I, health systems the administrator of the hospital. He's going to walk me through why it's going to. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, and, and there may be a pseudo logical reason, right? I mean, uh, a reason, uh, business reasons, whatever. Um, there there are always reasons for it, but do you know it doesn't have to be that way and, yeah. and there's an easy way to do it. So let's take a break. We'll come right back and uh, wrap up for today. Getting No2 connected gives you the freedom to unlock your potential and improve patient safety. Visit us at No2.com for more information and to see providers in your area waiting to connect with you.
0: Connect. Listen. Transform. This is Notify with your host, Dr. Peter Shuck and Teresa Bell.
1: Welcome. Welcome back, everybody, uh, from break. Uh, as we wrap up today, we've had a pretty broad range of uh, conversation today. It started with a very, uh, a story that that is a story that most of us face that you were willing and brave enough to share with all of us that allowed us to have a real dialogue around some of healthcare's biggest problems um, and how interoperability, which is that free flow of patient information, right, um, at the point of care, is a foundational part of the solutions to those biggest problems um, and and the impact it can have in a number of different areas and we just talked a little bit about transitions of care we'll have many other conversations here moving forward but we're going to wrap up for today as we've had that broad ranging conversation tracy you know we like on this podcast to be educational yes energetic hopefully entertaining <laughs> Yeah, it depends. Every once in a while, you know, it doesn't seem entertaining, but uh, entertaining. But we also want to give subject matter expertise in the different areas that we come from. At the end of the day, though, it's what do I do with all that information? So I've heard the information in a great environment, nice conversation. What the heck am I supposed to do next? So let's talk about that from this perspective and let's not isolate it to, um, what type of problem in healthcare we're trying to solve. The bigger problem is, how do I know if I'm connected? And how do I go about finding out if I'm connected? And how do I go about getting connected? And let's take it first, Teresa, from a provider or a provider organization perspective. What what would be the things, just the questions you would ask her, how would you go about that?
2: I, I mean, from a, from a provider perspective, the first thing, first thing you probably look to is your electronic health record. Although I'll, I'll say right now that you don't have to be your, your electronic health record doesn't have to be the only way that you get access and you get connected there's there's other tools that can do that um, but let's assume it's your electronic health record or your EHR you would call your and,
1: and I think honestly that's a fair place to start because you want it to be in your workflow the best you can right yeah
2: absolutely yeah absolutely yeah. and and it's just not if, it, if it's not connected it you're not, it's not the you're end of the end world the water, right you you yep. can you can work around it Um, But with your electronic health record, you really call your first question you could ask is, are you no two connected? Because if they're no two connected, just like if I have Bluetooth capable headphones or I have Bluetooth capable devices, I know they will work with my iPhone. You can assume that if your EHR is no two connected and they turn it on for you, you can work with these national networks where it's basically the power grid for moving information around healthcare at large.
1: So Um, am I no two connected? um, And if I am, is it turned on? And, and right. am I getting those features?
2: That's right. And if the answer is no, you're not No2 connected, your your next obvious question is, is why, but also understanding, well, what am I connected to? If I don't have No2 connection, what am I connected to? And getting that kind of detail from your EHR provider. But like I said, if you don't have it through there, there's other tools, uh, including ones that are provided by No2 that gives you connectivity uh, and allows you to share information and get access to information that you don't, you don't necessarily have today through your EHR. And it's better than using the phone and the fax machine to do it. So you can get access to that clinical information.
1: Yeah. It's funny. We don't really push a lot of that in our base business model, just because we believe that, um, you've invested as a provider in an EHR and an EHR partner. And that's where the majority of your clinical workflow goes and having information that's pertinent to that, um, coming in and out of the EHR is probably the most seamless way of doing it. Uh, but to your point, there are solutions and we help provide some of those solutions if you can't get no two connected or your EHR is not uh, no two yeah, connected. Yeah, especially
2: like in the post-acute space, there's, um, we have a number of partners, EHR partners or digital health platform partners that provide, for instance, intake tools. Um, or you look at like Salesforce Health Cloud, that's no two connected. These tools that are used in front of the EHR as kind of a catcher's mitt for all this data. And then once I accept the patient and I accept that transition, then I can push it into my EHR, but there's there's tools that sit in front of an EHR tool that allow you to do that.
1: I'm feeling like there's this slide that we need to generate that shows this kind of branching algorithm of the questions one would need to ask. And it's really a derivative of a few simple questions. It's number one, am I no two connected, right? If the answer is yes, is it turned on?
0: Yep. If it's
1: turned on, am I leveraging it to the fullest um, uh, of my capability and what features do I have um, that can, uh, and, and what impact might those features have? If it's not turned on, how do I get it turned on?
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, and if I'm not No2Connected, how do you get No2Connected through the EHR or what are the solutions elsewise, right? Yep. yep. Um, so I, in, in that, I'm just going to take from your answer, because we talked about this at the break a little bit, and I want to share this with the audience. It, it really is, there's, and we talked about it in the last segment, thousands of things we can do. First step is get connected. Yep. First step is get connected. None of the wonderful things we talk about are possible if we're not connected first. It's right? like
2: buying fancy appliances for my house, but I don't have power, you know, yep. to the house at all. That's, yep. that, that's why we love do that?
1: that. Yeah. love that. Love that. And then the last thing I would say from a patient perspective, I would tell you, I would want every patient to walk in and have a conversation with their provider. And, you know, you could start a conversation with, am I no two connected? They probably won't know yeah. because no two's not a household brand name, we sit behind the scenes and drive a lot of the industry's ability to communicate, but we don't, we're not uh forward thinking. So I think the conversation I would have with my provider is, Hey, can you see all of my healthcare? Can you see all of my records um, uh, when you need them? Uh, if I go on vacation and get hurt in an urgent care, do you have the ability to get that electronically transmitted uh, the next time I come in? Not me having to call and having them fax it but are you electronically connected in that way? Um, I think it's important from a safety perspective. As a patient, I want to know that my doc has line of sight to all my allergies, all my medications, like we were talking about before. Um, So I think that's, I think that's incredibly important. So I think from my perspective, those are the pragmatic steps to really get started. Um, And then we can begin to talk about some of the other things. And we'll continue, I think to perseverate on that message because it is simple and it is the first step. Um, And you can't, Take the second step without first taking the first step, right? So, wonderful. Uh,
2: I use the analogy of, of the internet and the kind of the metamorphosis that the consumer industry had to go through when they started. People just started with dial-up, and they started with, and it's not a difference in speed like we saw with the internet. But it took a crowd to get to make it valuable, right? So everybody's got to get connected to really get the full enhancement. Then it's all about education and and starting with conversations like this.
1: Well, yeah. And I, another silly analogy is you may have a cell phone and a phone number, but if I don't know it, Doesn't matter. I can't call you. So yeah. you may be connected and I don't know it. So we're not benefiting from the exchange that we could be benefiting from on either side of the business. So right. awareness. And that's a, a plug for the connectivity report. Find out who's, you know, go to know2.com. Uh, put in a few simple um, uh, piece of information, your name, email address, so we know who to send the uh, report to. And you'll get a report of people who are connected in your area and capable of digital exchange, which is a really good first step in that regard as well. So um, uh, I I think uh, uh, on something else, the other side of that question is, am I connected? The other question is, okay, if I am and I want to get connected, if I'm not, what can I do with it? Who can I connect with? Um, Isn't
2: that how the... This is before my time, so I'm going to ask you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the white pages, with the reverse index of the white pages, isn't that how it worked by a geographic area
1: that I could go find the yeah, reverse? I, I have point. no, I'm just a dumb doc. I have no idea what you're <laughs> talking about.
2: <laughs> yeah, the white pages used to be alphabetical, right? So the first part. And then the second part was a reverse index where it was by geographic area. So if I wanted to see what was in an area and get the identification information. That's kind of what our connectivity analysis report
1: does. Wow. I don't ever remember using the white pages. I did use the yellow pages occasionally, mostly to stand on because I'm relatively I short. I
2: making crank calls, but I wanted to know in this, you know, this group, who could
1: I, who could I call? Okay. I think we'll leave it there with the crank calls. <laughs> Wonderful. Guys, uh, really appreciate you joining us today. We'll see you next time on Notify.
0: Thanks for joining us today. That's a wrap for this episode. Please subscribe or follow on your favorite podcast platform to make sure you don't miss an episode. Get No2 connected today and set yourself and your organization free to unlock your potential. For more information on the value of being No2 connected, visit us at ww.no2.com. Follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Connect. Listen. Transform.